Hi, Juliana. Welcome to our newest segment of the show. Juliana will be um, joining us for every couple episodes. We are going to be doing a different version of the show. So it's still triggered to life, but we are going to uh, dive deeper into different topics that we're interested in the moment. Uh, we're going to reframe some different things. We're going to shift perspectives in different ways. And we really hope you enjoy this version. So welcome, Juliana. Excited to be here with you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be back and joining this new segment. Yeah, me too. Um, Juliana, Juliana and I have, um, we just have, I like to think we have like good friend chemistry. So talking to her is always really fun. And we have these crazy conversations all the time when we're walking and we decided to kind of turn that into a podcast. So I want to start today with a really funny, well, I think it's funny, but a really <laughs> telling story of this pocket watch that Juliana has in her possession. It's a family artifact or family heirloom. Yeah. I'd say. But so, can you tell people a little bit more about yeah, so history and what history. happened today? Okay, so my grandfather passed away about two, a little over two years ago. Mm -hmm. And there was this pocket watch that I thought was a locket that he hit, was his grandmother. So it's my great, great grandmother's. And he always told me it was for me and... um Anyway, I forgot about it many years ago. I thought it was silver and I thought it was a locket. And after he died, I talked to this intuitive and she, this is when I was deciding whether or not I should go to Europe. And she told me that there's a gold pocket watch that was left for me that um, was going to help me find my way. And it was important. I took that through Europe. And I said like, no, there's a silver locket. I think my mom's told me, but I don't know. Turns out it was a gold pocket watch and I took it to Europe and it was like, I used it kind of as my compass or my north node, as you will, like to help me in difficult times. I would sort of talk to it. I, it, I personified it. I sort of channeled my grandfather who I was very close with and my great, great grandmother. And that sort of led me through my self-exploratory trip through Europe. And it started ticking one day in Europe when I was like having a really hard time and not sure what I was going to do. It just randomly started ticking. It had never ticked before. And I actually have a video of it because it was so crazy. And then, so it's sort of been this thing. It's like, it was the beginning of me talking to my intuition. My intuition mm -hmm. was through this pocket watch. And it's sort of been a, a crutch in some ways, because as you know, I'll be like, well, if I'm doing something like spiritual or something where I'm trying to get in touch with my intuition, I, I need the pocket watch. I don't have those powers without, without it. And so about a month or two ago, I was on the phone with an intuitive and it just, the exterior of it just broke in my hand that was the first thing and then today I was on the phone with my professor um a professor of mine that I'm trying to work with or do something with career-wise and I'm holding it in my hand and the glass on the outside just shattered and so it's interesting like I don't know what to do with this information it's almost like I'm becoming stronger than it or that I'm somehow wow. like I don't need it anymore. And it's like the, the messages, um, you know, you don't, you don't need me anymore. You have this yourself. So I yeah. feel like it's, it's, this is the beginning of 
me and my hero's journey. <laughs> yeah. And I really love this story because a couple of weeks ago we were going to a meditation retreat and Juliana's like, I got to bring the pocket watch. And I was like, but maybe you don't need to bring it this time. And she looked at me like, but then when we got there, she forgot about it and she didn't bring it into the meditation. So it was just kind of funny because you're stepping away from. Well, yeah, it's, inter it's an interesting allegory of like how we outsource our power, right? Like this was the beginning of me getting out of my logical brain and into my intuition, which led me through that whole five month journey in Europe where I didn't make any plans and just like let my intuition lead me. But mm -hmm. I didn't have the confidence then to do that without some like exterior artifact that I thought had power. And mm. even like a previous version of me would have said, that's crazy. How could you like personify this um, object to have power? But it's like, as I've gotten more aligned with myself and like left my old logic and pragmatic ways behind, in some ways I've, I don't need as much help. It's like, I know I have the power now. I don't need that. Yeah. Like you trust yourself. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm. I think that leads really well into our next, um, topic which is trusting your intuition but also mm -hmm. uh intuition versus anxiety mm -hmm. and what those feel like in the body um yeah speak a little bit to that okay so i would say like for me it's i experience more fear than anxiety which is i guess the same same different sides of the same coin mm -hmm. but for me intuition is like a deep knowing and i've been practicing this like i just practiced this last night of um asking myself questions and seeing what my body feels like like mm. for me anxiety or fear like my heart beats really fast and i feel hot and i feel mm. like it's like the feel it's like a little bit of like claustrophobia and like shortness of breath versus intuition is just like calm it's like being in the ocean it's just like mm. um it might make no sense like they can both make no sense but the, it's almost like a, you at, you get relaxed and you ask yourself a question. This is a technique that I learned recently. And then you see, what does it feel like? Like, what does it feel like to get a yes or a no? And that's your intuition versus anxiety or fear. Fear is like all of, for me, fear is like the racing thoughts and all the reasons I shouldn't do something that seems new and different and outside the beaten path and doesn't make sense. Yeah. But intuition is like a deep knowing and it's also like, it almost like makes you stand up straight or like it, it's mm -hmm. like a, it, for me, it like trickles down my spine or it's just like, it's like a clear, it's a yes, no. Yeah. Versus a, uh, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Panic. Yeah. Well, I think also too, it can be harder at this time because there is so much collective fear. Yeah. And so sometimes it's like you're trying to get clear clarity and yet you're not completely embodied. So you're trying to gain clarity from a place that's, you know, maybe a little bit of a fight or flight response. And it's really hard to have intuition when you're in that fear, but it's really easy to think that, you know, when you have fear, you feel a lot of different things. So it may kind of present itself as intuition when in reality, it's just fear. Um, so yeah. like you say, it's like a knowing, right? Yeah. And, so, and I know you and I have talked about this recently, but like 
what can you do to strengthen your intuition and get in sudden make the fear subside or on the flip side like what when does your fear start to override the intuition and i think we've both talked about like after we drink yeah if we've been eating poorly like it just it's such a 30s reframe to be like i'm actually not going to eat well or drink less like for i don't care about the way it makes me look it's like i mean i do but you know that's its own thing it's like yeah. now it's for this level of like i want to be a clearer channel to be able to hear myself and for me if i think about like when the first time that i really heard myself was when i was in europe and i was eating really well and hiking and you know I, like i was really healthy and had was practicing really good clean habits and that's yeah. when you hear intuition like when you start to lean into vices and numb yourself and that can be through anything like there are so many ways that people numb themselves from being able to hear their intuition and i think it's hard to think about yourself as doing that but like we all have things that we reach for and i think you know we've talked about that but that looks like can look a lot of different ways but okay. when you sit and you have to feel more and sometimes those feelings are incredibly uncomfortable but that's when like information starts to come to you yeah i mean i think it's so interesting like i feel like maybe it's because i was eating super you know like plant based from an early age but i always had this like deep inner knowing in so many different ways but for me it was almost too much like i felt too mm -hmm. much so i was super drawn to disconnecting in whatever way i could and yeah, I still like had a lot of clarity around different things, but I feel like when you muddy your channel, sometimes your intuition doesn't, can't come through and it comes out as anxiety and it comes out as depression. And, yeah. you know, I think that can be hard too, because I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of rhetoric that's like, well, if you're not on your path, you might experience anxiety. If you're not on your path, you might experience depression. You know, like in my mind, there are some truths to that, but also it's just, it's more than that. It's not just like these simple, you know, sweeping generalizations. Yeah. I think also something I've been thinking about um, to piggyback off that is how quickly we pathologize depression and anxiety. Like, I mean, especially for me growing up with parents that are psychologists, like if you're sad, oh, are you depressed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. are you anxious? Like, can't I just be sad and it will pass? And to to like have to label it and identify with it and pathologize it and turn it into this thing that requires treatment is kind of robbing me from the experience of just experiencing it. Well, and and yeah. intellectualizing it and you know um, wanting to treat it is like disconnecting from the experience of just going through walking through it. Yeah. I had a friend on Instagram yesterday messaged me and I was talking about how, you know, like I've been feeling really good. And when you feel really good, like you, you want to like tell everyone you feel good. Like, oh, I feel so good. Like whatever. Right. And when you feel bad, like I like to share that too, because I like to normalize a spectrum of emotions. Like, right. You can be both sad. You can be mm -hmm. both happy. And she was like, are you sure that's not like bipolar? And she's like, <laughs> not saying that's what you have, but like, and I was like, Hmm wow have we gotten to the point where like you can't actually experience a spectrum of emotions like it has to be like a diagnosis and I know this is what she was saying but yeah, it yeah. brought that up for me to think like huh how quick we are to be like oh well sounds like your personalities are a little split or like whatever it right. is or like how quickly do we get out the DSM to start um running our symptoms across like checklists 
when we don't feel good. And there's so much pressure to feel good and to be okay. But what does that mean? Like, we don't have a benchmark. We don't have a benchmark of what, of what like that looks like. Yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about over identification of like anything, right? Like yeah. we all, I mean, I, what I see like identi- identifying with a specific group with a specific ideal creates um, a container of safety, right? Like a lot of people really like to be seen as like vegans because then they belong to something or they want to mm-hmm. be paleo because they belong to a group and they can find their people or, you know, they want to uh, be whatever it is they want to be, but, or, or, or sober or, you know, whatever it is, those are all great. And like, who are we without these identities that we latch onto so strongly? Like, why can't you just be Juliana? and all the things that Juliana encompasses, but like naturally we want to gravitate toward these groups and towards these identifications to make us feel some sort of connection with one another. Yeah. And then you get into like over identification of trauma with trauma too, of like, well, I am a codependent or I am an alcoholic and, and I, you know, that's not, these are not my experiences. And I know that that brings so much meaning and purpose and healing to so many people. But I think you also have to get have to be careful of, you know, over identifying with your neuroses or over identifying with these labels that then keep you in a box. Totally. And, you know, I will caveat that with like, if you're an alcoholic and you identify as an alcoholic and that's, you know, I know that saved many people's lives and like, I don't discredit that at all. And if, you know, you want to, um, take a look at your drinking and you don't identify as an alcoholic, but you want to get curious about the reason why you do the things you do. That's also okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so almost sometimes like these over identifications can hold people back from actually like seeking help in a lot of different ways because they don't want to be on one side of the spectrum or the other side of the spectrum. And yeah, I resonate with that a lot. Because I'm like, yeah, well, it's like saying I have anxious attachment or I am depressed. It's just like, well, this is the way I am. So I'm not going to try to change it. And, and I'm not trying to be flippant with, with, you know, real issues like alcoholism and addiction where, you know, there is that support group is what honestly saves people's lives in some ways, but kind of with the like lower scale, the less traumatic and, um, you know, less obtrusive to our live diagnoses that we give ourselves like in what way is that inhibiting our own growth to like keep us small and I see myself do that too totally I mean I see that with like illness and disease and like you know like for a long time like I was so identified with the autoimmune disorder and like now like it just is a part of me but I don't think about it but for a long time like I really had to hold on to like all these things that were wrong with me but I got to a point where I realized like that over identification was keeping me sick because I was just mm-hmm. constantly like, well, I can't do this because I have this and I can't do this. Right, because right. I have that. Well, in reality, like I healed myself while I still kept what people would deem unhealthy in my life. So like mm-hmm. there is no right way to heal. It's what's right for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going into, we have a fun little segment that we wanted to try out, which is questions to our younger self no from our younger self from our younger self no not to um (laughs) questions from our younger self and i'll let juliana start with her question 
So I've been thinking a lot about questions I would have asked myself in the past and that I can answer now. Or And, and the past can also be like this morning, by the way, yeah. or it could be many years ago. The question I've been asking myself and I want to answer from like my higher self or almost like myself in the future, we'll do like a little quantum experience, yeah. is am I always going to feel this much? So my experience of, for most of my 20s, I was on an antidepressant, Adderall, and birth control. Going off of each of those is like, the going off of birth control is kind of what blew up my marriage because I got my sex drive back. Um, going off Adderall has led me to be extremely fatigued and has like done a lot of processing around getting back into my own energy. And then going off the antidepressant has left me feeling just a lot more. And so I've been thinking like, oh my God, like, is it all for the last two months? Just like, am I always going to feel this much? Like, is this what normal, is this what it feels like? What was I, what was happening in my twenties that I was like completely just like blocked off from the world and, um, now it's like the floodgates have opened and I'm so much more sensitive to other people's energy. I'm so much more sensitive to my own emotional fluctuations. I just like find myself like crying casually in the shower and, but then I'm fine. It like, it just passes. And so my answer or kind of my working answer to myself in that question is one, there's a lot going on right now collectively. You know, we are getting to a point of finally trying to rebuild society and I don't and I purposely don't say like go back to the old way because I don't think that we will go back I think that we'll, we're only going forward and it will look different but there's like oh as we talked about a lot of collective fear and a mm. lot of um just like anxiety around what it means to be in groups again and then you know I'm also going through personal stuff I went through a breakup recently I just finished graduate school I'm not sure what I'm doing next like there is a lot of transition which you know, causes me to feel. And then the other reframe is sort of like, what if feeling is my superpower? You know, I felt a lot as a kid and my parents didn't know what to do with that. And they intellectualized and pathologized my emotions because they're psychologists and they didn't really experience that kind of emotional mm -hmm. fluctuation. And I've talked, we've talked about this more recently, but so like me numbing out from my emotions in my 20s was a very safe thing for me to do because I was modeled as a kid as like emotions are unsafe and you're erratic when you're emotional and you make mm -hmm. like impulsive decisions and you're out of control and like that's not love that's not how you receive love in the world mm -hmm. and that's not how you get ahead in the world and and like I would rather be disconnected and dissociated from my emotions than um, learn to hone them or learn to just like mm -hmm. allow them to move through me. And so now I'm starting to see like, oh, maybe feeling all of this is somehow going to help me because in a moment of depth of feeling, especially pain and, you know, it's actually the resisting of the feeling that is much worse than actually feeling it, like mm -hmm. pushing away, you know, you start to feel sadness, you start to feel anxiety and you start to feel panic. And it's actually the feeling of like, oh no, I can't feel this. This isn't safe. Alert, red button, like just scream. No, 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 no. I can't do this. That is much worse than just like the pain itself. And that realization okay. is something that I've only really come to in the past month or two. And that's kind of changed everything. Like, I think I was making it much worse on myself for all those years um, by pushing away feeling rather than just like surrendering into it. 
and just saying like, I know this is temporary. I know this feels bad, but it actually doesn't feel that bad when you just let it pass through you. Yeah. Well, I also think, and I don't, I won't say that this is like proven scientifically in any means, but, um, the idea that if you are on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety, like where do those emotions go? Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. like you, it dampens them. Right. So one, does the stress response finish itself? Like where, like, or do they get stored in your body somewhere? Like, yeah. Is, are you feeling more right now because you have this overabundance of like emotions circulating through the body that, the nervous system is trying to regulate and like in three months, like you'll still feel, but you won't feel at the rate at which you do right now. Right. Like I'm feeling emotions that have been building up since 2006, since I went on those drugs that I only went off of a few months ago. So it's just kind of wild to think about like um, how we end up in these situations. And then the other thing kind of related to that is just, you know, being in a relationship for my entire twenties on those medications is like, that relationship worked when I was medicated and when I was like very controlled emotionally and when my sex drive was controlled and when my energy was maintained and when my serotonin and norepinephrine were balanced. So it's just kind of interesting to think of like, maybe think twice before getting married or committing to someone if you don't plan to be on the same cocktail of drugs for your entire life. I mean, I just, it never occurred to me. Yeah. And I'm sure that's like, like I was laughing. I'm just like, Oh, it sounds like, um, housewives in the seven sixties. Like I have my Ativan, mommy's little (laughs) helper and like everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, like if you're on antidepressants and anxiety medication, like that is also a hundred percent. Okay. We are just talking about the differences and how you can feel in different states of your life and sharing all perspectives because that's what we do here. Um, uh, I want to go back to, um, your anxious attachment and secure attachment, because as you know, obsessed with attachment styles right now. And I have the, a really fun analogy, which a client who is a psychologist gave me the other day because I have fun conversations with my client, but she was saying that she likes to explain anxious attachment and secure attachment as like, um, as metabolism. So if you have anxious attachment, it is because you metabolize quickly. So say like, you're dating someone and they give you, you have a great evening with them and you have so much fun. And then you go home and, you know, you don't text with them because you just were with them and you start to get a little anxious, right? That's because you metabolize that experience really quickly. So by the next afternoon, you're probably ready for more. Whereas someone with secure attachment, that engagement, that connection they had the previous night could be good for a couple days or maybe for 24 hours, 36 hours before they want to text and they want to hang out a couple days later, whatever it is. If you're avoidant, that interaction may be good for a week. Right. So I really liked, the, right. I really liked the 
anxious, the, the attachment styles as like thinking of it like metabolism. Um, yeah. I also think like you can just have fast metabolism in love in general. It doesn't have to be anxious attachment. Like I like when the person I'm dating like shows me a lot of love and a lot of affection and a lot of attention because I like that. That feels good to me. But I also don't need to see them every single day. I can go a couple, you know, like a week because I like to be in my own space and I like to be in my own energy and I like to hang out with other people. But I just found that so fascinating. Yeah. I remember, you know, it's interesting to think back on like before we had the languaging for this, but just like what intuitively we were drawn to. I remember in college or maybe shortly after college talking to a friend about like, you know, you know, you can tell a lot about yourself, like how you fill the blank space when you're dating someone. Like you have a good interaction, either text interaction or in-person interaction. Then you don't hear from them for several hours, even the next day, whatever. What story do you make up to fill in that blank space? Is it, I mean, in people with anxious attachment, although I didn't have that language then, I think like, uh-oh, I bet he doesn't like me anymore. Why isn't he texting me? Or, you know, he's either on yeah. a date with someone else. I mean, every single story of why you're not hearing from them is negative and puts a wedge between the two of you. If yeah. you're secure, it's, oh, well, the last time I heard from him, he, you know, and obviously this doesn't extend for like weeks at a time, but overnight, let's say. Like, oh, well, the last time I talked to him, things were great. So like, of course they're so great. He's just doing yeah. his own thing. And if you're avoidant, it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to him anymore, actually. Like, you know, you just- I, didn't, you I don't like him anyways. I don't like him anyways. I never liked him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just funny to think about like, when there's blank space, how do you fill that? And what thoughts, what, what do you, what's the story you tell yourself to fill in that blank space? I think that answer tells you a lot about your attachment. Totally. Style. And that really goes into, for me, like I can oscillate between all three, depending on whether or not my nervous states, my nervous system is in a state of relaxation. Hmm right? Because I also think insecure attachment is when people haven't really finished the stress response, mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that is like, we can get stuck in this state of fight or flight. And when we're stuck in a state of fight or flight, we have to finish the stress response. So ways that you can finish your stress response, and this goes for any sort of like state of fight or flight, this can also lead to burnout if you don't finish the stress response, but ways you can finish it is like physical activity, doing something creative, um, deep breathing. Um, what else? Um, so how does the stress response get stuck? Well, the stress response gets stuck in like a number of, of different ways. Essentially. Um, well, one, if you're, say you're in a, you know, this is a, this is like kind of a, um, an example that's um, a little more intense, but say you're in a car crash and you are in this like trauma response, you go to the ER and they sedate you, right? So they give you like an anti-anxiety. Well, they're actually freezing you in that fight or flight response. Mm. And when you freeze someone in that fight or flight response, that's when PTSD can be developed. Mm. And so of course, on a micro level, that could be like, I am chronically tired from the overworking I'm doing. And instead of like soothing myself in health supportive ways, I am soothing myself with drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're not actually completing the response. You're um, using things outside of yourself 
to bring you relief that aren't healthy. What if you do something that is healthy to complete it, like exercise or... Yeah, then the stress response completes. Oh, okay. Right, so physical activity, you know, completes the stress response for a lot of people. So does deep breathing. So does like laying and reading a book. It's just when people don't give themselves that space to decompress mm-hmm. and to come back into a state of relaxation, do they um, stay in that stress response? So like in love, you know, a really great way to feel more secure in relationship is to do more self-care for yourself, to get into your own energy, to, um, you know, become really comfortable with, you know, as we like to call it, dating yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about like cult- the most important relationship you're ever going to have is with yourself. And someone told me that recently and I was very angry. Um, <laughs> it's just, a, it's just such a frustrating thing to say, to hear. But I, as I felt into that more, I have just realized the importance of like, there are multiple versions of you. Like, cause I thought like, you know, how do you have a relationship with yourself? Like you are yourself, but there are multiple versions of you. There's like the you that observes your thoughts. There's the you that is an inner, that has tantrums. That's an inner, mm-hmm. that's a child. Sometimes there's like the wise version of you. There's the daughter, there's the friend, there's all these things. And so how can you get, there's your shadow. And so how can you get to know all the sides of you better? And almost like, as you know, we've talked a little bit about in our outside of podcast life, like how can you go take different parts of you on dates? How can you cultivate relationships with different, these different parts of you so that at the end of the day, you know yourself and you, it's also like, you're never bored. If you get to know yourself, it kind of keeps you from that feeling of loneliness. Yeah. I remember like five years ago when I was, um, I was reading something by Mark Groves and he was saying that, um, it, he was talking about like, you should start doing things that like you want to do and like, you'd want to do with like a future partner. Mm -hmm. And so I really started doing that because one, I didn't know anyone in DC at the time. And I just moved here and I was incredibly lonely. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just like do these things anyways, because I'm extremely bored and like, I have to do something because I'm a social person. I just don't know anyone. Mm -hmm. So I would start like bringing my, I would go to like the daybreaker events by myself, like, you know, which I ended up meeting a lot of people there and like some of them are my friends today, but you know, going to different meditation events and yoga events and going to, you know, the, these nature preserves in different places. And yeah, like at the time I was like, this is kind of lame, but it's also kind of fun because like I have a great time by myself and, you know, in my next relationship, we did a lot of those things together because he also liked to, to do those things, which was just funny that like, yeah, I mean, I was doing it just to like do it, but it ended up being that like the person I was with loved to do those things too. So I think there is something to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I will ask myself my question from my younger self, which is why did I burn out at such a young age? And I've been thinking a lot about this lately because I've had a chance to like share my story a few times um, in the recent months. And 
one thing that I don't think I took into account um, when I was younger, although I did think about this when I was 22 and I was burning out, was when you are so young and you burn yourself out and you have adrenal fatigue and you get sick, it's usually more than just um, overworking or overstressed out, right? So the way I look at it is like when you experience stress during your childhood and you are not given the tools to work through it, right? I mean, I definitely had physical activity, which I think helped a lot, but we aren't really taught how to use tools and coping mechanisms to get our body back into um, a parasympathetic mode, which is the opposite of fight or flight, right? And oftentimes that can, that prolonged stress on the body can have negative health impacts long-term. So I think the thing that people forget to take into mind when they think about burnout is like, did you experience grief as a child? Did you experience trauma as a child? Did you experience high levels of stress? Were you internalizing other people's emotions? You know, were you taking, are you, were you sensitive? Were you taking on the emotions of people around you? Um, for me, I know I'm very intuitive and I'm very sensitive to people's energy. And I think that I was taking on a lot of the energy that was around me, right? Like, even though my parents were amazing in so many different ways, and they really are, um, when you have a sick parent, there's just a lot going on, right? And so mm -hmm. your nervous system is taxed to a certain extent that you don't even realize, and you just adapt and you become okay with it and you're totally fine with it. But it hasn't been until this year that I realized like, I've unpacked so much of that old grief because of the grief that I went through at the beginning of the pandemic that triggered all the old grief that I hadn't really ever dealt with because I didn't even know it lived in my body so deeply. And yet all the processing and all the work I've done this year, like I feel like a completely different person because I've released so much and let go of so much from my past, which... Mm -hmm feels so incredible. And I still, you know, there's always a little, you know, there's always still something to work through, but the lightness I feel in my body compared to even a year ago is incredible. And I don't know, I say that because I'm such, I have so much interest in learning now, like how trauma affects the body. And, you know, you, we've spoken about this book, the body keeps the score, mm -hmm. um, by who's it by? Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah, that guy. Um, because if people are like, I think about this, if people aren't healing um, when they change their diet or when they change their exercise or and when they change their exercise routine, they need to continue to dig deeper because a lot of health issues are actually rooted in nervous system dysfunction. Um, and so this is just like an invitation to get curious. If you are experiencing health challenges and you can't figure out like the missing link, like look mm -hmm. into the trauma link, look into somatic experiencing and working with a somatic therapist, because I know personally that's really helped, um, both of us, but that's just something that, uh, we yeah. talked a lot about. I, lately. 
I think also, um, you know, it's trite, but like the only way out is through. And I've heard so many people say like that they're scared to go into therapy or scared to do some kind of deep experience because they're scared to remember something from the past or they're scared to relive a trauma. And, and obviously you need to be sensitive and make sure you're doing that in a safe way. But those experiences live in the body and repressed in the mind too. And like the only way to get through them is to re is to experience them. And that's going to be painful, but I, I mean, I can say from my own experience, it's much less painful than the low hum of ongoing pain that subverts your life by pushing them away and living out of integrity with your true self. And I just think like, you know, why is there, what in our society has created this fear of like looking underneath the hood and really going deep and, you know, seeing your shadows, looking at your old traumas, like, yes, that's scary, but like, how is that worse than pushing it all away long-term? Yeah. Yeah. I was at a, um, I was at some, a get together this weekend and I heard a side conversation going on and these two girls were talking about, um, how they don't like therapy because they don't want to talk about it, but they rather just, um, be on an antidepressant than talk about it. And there are some things that are too painful to discuss at this moment. And I trust that if you're, if you choose to talk to someone, they will create an environment and a space that feels safe to eventually get there, right? Mm -hmm. You don't walk into therapy and say, Hey, I'm ready to talk about X, Y, Z from seven to, to 10 years old. No, that's not how it starts. It's like you create a container that feels really comfortable and maybe, you know, a year in or six months in or three months in, whatever it is, you, you start to uncover those deeper parts of self that have, that are hiding so deeply, but it doesn't have to be intimidating. It can be, you know, it can be a yes. And like anxiety medication and mm -hmm. therapy, anxiety medication and alternative modalities. Right. So there is no right or wrong. It's just like, how are you going to live a life without um, a deep sense of dread. Yeah, yeah. Or, and or I think happiness. Right. And I think a sensitive practitioner can do that slowly. I mean, just to share my own experience briefly, like I started working with a somatic experience practitioner at the beginning of March. And in our first session, she said she could tell that I, she triggered some of uh, a sexual trauma for me from high school and she felt it. And, and she said, well, let's not go there today because I'm new and you don't, you don't know me. And then about a month later, once I like shared that story publicly and she was part of the reason that I got there, yeah. we worked on it a lot. And like, it takes a little time to build that trust with someone, but you know, you check in with yourself along the way, like, am I ready to get into this or not? And to be frank, like I've read the first chapter of The Body Keeps the Score because it's traumatizing for me, but I'll get there. I'll get there when I'm ready. Like I read as much yeah. as I can and then you keep going and like you just go, you just push a little farther in what feels right. And if you watch over time, like that will continue to deepen and you'll continue to move through it. It may not be at the pace you want, but, or at the pace that you'd like to see, but like mm -hmm. it's still progress better than nothing yeah yeah I mean like I've unpacked things this year that I never ever expected to think about again ever mm -hmm. and it was a surprise to even myself that these things came up because like 
they didn't really, I hadn't processed, they hadn't thought about them as things that were impeding me in any way. And yet now that I'm not carrying those around as a secret, um, I feel so much better. Yeah. It's very freeing. I feel, so freeing. I feel so much lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's transition to projections. Okay. Okay. So we've talked about this a little briefly, but this idea of, you know, projection is like a hot word. It's like attachment styles or, you know, it's like one of the codependency It's like everyone wants mm-hmm. to talk about, Oh, she's so-and-so is just projecting on me. Oh, you're just projecting, yeah. you know, you're, you're saying what it makes you feel and how you relate to this. And we recently have had, have unpacked a little bit about like, and learned more about projections and, and discovered that we're always projecting, you know, projections are how we see the world. We see the world through our own experience. It's our only frame of reference. So every story that you tell me about a dating interaction with you, of course, all my only frame of reference is to quickly, you know, in nanoseconds without even realizing it go back and replay every date, every dating experience I've ever been on or I've ever seen a friend go on or I've ever seen in a movie and try to find some relation to what you're talking about. Like that is human interaction. So to say you're projecting is really just, you know, pop psychology and probably, you know, we are always projecting. So I think if you remove the filter of like someone's projecting and you just assume that we're always projecting, one, how can you try to project a little less which I think is about being an active listener and really listening to their experience and trying at least making a conscious effort to not relate it to your own or to not make judgments about it. Obviously that's going to happen, but like listen more and talk less. That's step one. And then step two is like, when you get other people's projections of you, how can you take both the positive and the negative? Because I think in that, I think that comes from self-worth. Like, Mm. having a stronger self-worth means that I don't need to rely on other people's positive, positive, I put in quotes, projections of me. Um, and then the negative ones don't hurt me as much. Like when I cultivate my own, it's like back to the relationship with yourself. When I cultivate my own self-worth, my own self-esteem, my own confidence, then I'm not as reliant on other people telling me that like I'm smart and pretty and responsible and you know all these other things because I believe them. And the more I strengthen that, you know, I, I guess what it is is like I used to be so reliant on external validation and those positive projections, but then that makes opens me up for to be so susceptible and crushed by the negative projections. And, yeah. you know, for me that those all came at the end of my marriage and I internalized them so deeply because I didn't have a strong sense of self. And, and yeah. like, I was just reliant on like wherever I could get my fix of external validation. And so cultivating your own self-worth and your own sense of self means like, Oh yeah, sure. It's nice when someone reflects a positive mirror back to me and it's not, it's not the only source of sustenance for me feeling good about myself. And then at the same time, when someone reflects something negative back to me, I can let it roll off of me a little bit easily or a little bit more easily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's like to take the good productions, you also have to take the negative productions. Right. Right. And you can't selectively just take the good ones because I mean, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. I love that explanation. Um, that was a fun, we, we had a a teacher bring up projections like 
right after we were talking about how someone was projecting onto us and we were like, <laughs> nothing is a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. And it's been such a good reminder. I mean, I haven't used that phrase like, oh, so-and-so is projecting on me since then, because now I see that like, we're always just doing that. And that it's kind of just, I don't know. It sort of opens me up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cool way to think about things. I mean, it just makes you think about how many things that we just take and, and run with it because it's a word and it's, you know, I don't, we give everything so much meaning. And I feel like, I don't know, we pick up words in psychology and we're like, she's doing this, he's doing right, that. Right. <laughs> it's like, eh, yes. And right. Where should we go next? Let's talk about going, uh, reemerging into society. Oh, and how God. yeah this is a good one um so i had the realization the other day that the pandemic is has been a snapshot of time that i may have in the moment not realized how significant it was for people who are highly sensitive right H like hsp hsps over here um i went from seeing I went from having a retail space to seeing lots of people in person constantly all day long to seeing very, very few people, only close friends, um, occasionally. And I saw all, I started seeing all my clients online. So I think the online, um, medium has a barrier of like, I actually feel like I can connect really well with people online, but, um, I'm not in these and people's energy fields. And so I feel like I was able to really find out what I feel like in my own energy for an extended period of time. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I created a little cocoon that felt really, really good. And now that I'm reemerging out into society, I'm a little more sensitive than I expected. And I told, I was just talking to Juliana about this earlier. And I was like, she's like, I just feel so sensitive when I'm around you know, X, Y, Z now. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you give up gluten and dairy for an extended period of time or alcohol and you, and you give it up for extended period of time, and then you go out and you're like, I'm going to get pizza. I'm going to get some beer. I'm going to, you know, like whatever it is, gluten, dairy, alcohol, you have it and you feel like shit. But if you start to introduce it a little bit more and slower, time, you feel less like shit. Yeah. Because you re-sense, you re, you know, you're, you're no longer so sensitive to those things. But because we move, removed every single person that we've, you know, that drained us in some sort of way, we have to reintegrate back into society slowly. And so... Be mindful of the anxiety that you're feeling and, and really do a deep dive as to whether or not it's a hundred percent yours, or if maybe you're taking on the energy of other people. Yeah, that's such a good point. I've been feeling so much resistance, just like not even resistance as much as just like, I can't picture going in an office, seeing people every day, like being in workout classes and then going to, you know, being on public transportation and then going to be in an office. I'm like, what? How did I do that? It just seems like so many people, so much energy, so much, such a full day that 
it seems so hard to imagine and it's very overwhelming if to be honest like to imagine to to think about being back in that kind of life um but I guess if you ease into one thing at a time then it's less painful and then the other question is like will we go back to the lives that we live do you know how much how much will life change forever as a result of this in in some ways like will things look more remotely well, you know, yeah. we, don't, we obviously don't know the answer to that, but I think it's important to note. And I just keep, everyone I talk to says something about like, yeah, you know, I just don't want to have fake conversations anymore. You know, I, or you know, it's like everyone's having like their first baby shower or their first bachelorette party or their first job interviews where they're having to be fake, like more fake or, you know, inauthentic for the first time in over a year. And that's happening very you know in the recent past as things are opening up and it feels icky because we're not used to it we've surrounded ourselves we've created lives for the past 15 months where like we didn't really talk much to people that we didn't like <laughs> we got them out yeah. in person in person definitely yeah i mean it's well, someone asked me last night what i would keep from the pandemic like what what things that i really liked about it moving forward. What is that for you? Uh, slower morning. I like, mm -hmm. you know, just not, not no rushing in the morning. And that and it's almost like getting to a place where I feel like myself in the morning without having to like, wake up immediately exercise, drink caffeine. I mean, for me, it's hard because the pandemic also marked like when I was on Adderall and an antidepressant versus now. So it's life feels harder for like, it's harder to get going and harder to feel like myself or good in the morning now, but just like being more sensitive. And, and I think about like, what vices, what morning vices did we used to have or still have to, to live in that old structure? And that like, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to have to do those old things. Yeah. Well, I think it's weird. Um, weird for me too because like I ended a relationship as a pandemic started so like life right. looks so different to me now so like I mm -hmm. haven't really been back into society without like having a live-in boyfriend and having like all these things that I had to do because like we had a lot of social engagements together and like I don't have to do any of that shit anymore and it's like right. I get to do what I want to do so it's like I mean and I, it's not that I didn't want to do those things because I had a great time and it was fun but um, yeah, I like really haven't had to do a lot of things that I don't want to do, which is such a luxury, but also like, you know, I live alone. I've created a life like on my own. I run my own business. Like I don't, you know, so it's, it's really a lot of self-reliance, which is great. And I don't know, I'm curious to what you know what that's going to look like in the future whether that's going to be like in washington dc or somewhere else and now that i'm not tied down to anything like okay like can i go feel more free somewhere else yeah i think it's it's a lot of deprogramming or deconditioning you know like pre-pandemic most of us were running on low and overexerting ourselves to be something in society that we were taught that we thought we should be well you know living a life that was like you know not for everyone I'll speak I'll just speak on my own experience but obviously I've talked to other people about this of like 
just pushing ourselves and in jobs that we weren't fully happy in in relationships we weren't fully happy in and in cities we weren't fully happy in and this collective pause has forced us to look inside and think of like what do I really want what life do I want why was I in that career why was I in that relationship why was I doing this like do I did I want to travel that much for work do you know do I want to be traveling Sunday through Thursday you know like a lot of business people did like is that what I really want or was I trying to achieve some goal of some ideal that I was fed by parents caretakers program you know whatever however we get our all of our societal programming um and like look at the life you've created for yourself in COVID and think about how you can bring that forward because that is probably more aligned with what you really want because it's what you created without any external factors or pressure yeah yeah it's interesting I did a workshop with a company um and you know it was a stress it was a stress survival skills workshop and Someone asked at the end, like, well, like all this stuff is really great, but like, what if you don't have time to use any of the tools that you're talking about? And I was like, in my head, you know, I recommended like, use your breath because you can always have access to your breath. It doesn't matter like where you are. You can always take an inhale in through your nose and out through your nose, right? Like that's accessible. But I also thought to myself, if you don't have any time to do any tools or to like, take an afternoon to go for, you know, 35 minutes to go for a walk. And what the fuck are you doing? Like, do you really want to live that life? I certainly don't. Like, I literally, I just, I'm freaking out here. But like, that sounds awful to me. Like, think I would also what you're doing. I would also um, just question that and ask, look at your Instagram activity. See how long you're on Instagram. See how long you're on Netflix. And rethink, re-ask yourself, do I really have no time? I mean, I have worked like relatively demanding careers and it feels like you have no time, but there's always time. Like you may, I mean, I've never had kids and worked a demanding career and not had any support. I mean, I understand there are, there are extenuating circumstances. We've obviously lived pretty privileged lives, but you hear that a lot more than I think it's valid. Yeah. Yeah. And I think privilege is a really good um, thing to take into account. It's like some people don't have the resources to not, uh, you know, work a job that they don't, that they hate and they don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, stay in the grind and that's understandable. I get that. And, um, there are ways to find time for people that think they don't have time. Right. Even if that's just, not looking at the phone for five minutes in the morning and sitting with yourself and like saying a prayer, right? Like there's little ways to access it. You also have to remember that we live in a society that really glamorizes being busy. You know, I mean, I remember when I lived in New York, it's like, if you're not busy, you're not cool. cool. Busy equals cool. Busy equals successful, popular, abundant. I mean, likable, like busy is, has cachet. And so it's interesting, you know, if that were not true and I never understood that, but I definitely felt the pressure of like, I got to make a lot of plans because then that's how I know that I'm, I got it. I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm valued, whatever. Yeah. And when you remove that pressure, what happens? I remember my happiest year in college was the year, my sophomore year. And my schedule would be like booked out from like 8am until like 
the party at night. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I love that. I loved mm-hmm. being busy because I didn't realize it was like the, one of the first times, like I didn't have to feel all the things I was feeling because I was using busyness as like a means of like coping. And that was amazing. And it totally served its purpose until it didn't when I burned <laughs> out like yeah. three years later yeah well busy when you stay busy and you stack your day you don't have any time to feel I mean take take some time and do nothing and all you'll do is feel and then you know and that's why it's partly why we stack time because distractions you know just literally distract us from what we're feeling and so you know, if you can find the luxury of time, which I think that every most people in this audience can find to some degree, um, try doing nothing. And that doesn't have to be meditating, but like put down your phone and just like sit in nature and just like see what happens. Just yeah. Observe. And if you don't yeah. like it, you don't have to keep doing it, but like you'll feel more, I'll guarantee you, you'll feel more than you will like doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the best thing to do is just do nothing. Be, Yeah. It's hard though, because everything we've been taught and fed our entire lives is about achievement and doing instead of being. And I think for me, like a lot of growth has come from realizing that when I just am, I actually go deeper and learn more and get more done, which is an interesting reframe, get more done with myself and like further myself to where I want to go in life than when I'm hustling or trying to do, do, do. Yeah. What uh what do you want to leave the audience with today? Um I think just um like some kind of mantra of like it's going to be okay and we're going to figure this out and like let's collectively let go of the past. Like let's let go of what our lives looked like from 2010 to 2020 and focus more on envisioning what we want them to look like you know, for the, this new roaring twenties and don't let the past inform what you want the future to be like, create the future from what you actually want, not from what you liked in the past. Cause we're not there anymore. We ain't going back. We ain't going back. Oh, I love it. What do you well, want to leave people with? I will leave people with what makes you feel most alive. Pick one thing, go out and do it. See how you feel. Mm, love that. If you don't know what makes you feel alive, DM me. We can we can talk it through. We'll figure it out. There's always something. There's always something. All right. Well, this was really fun. I really yeah. hope everyone enjoyed this and that they found it a valuable hour of their day. Maybe they're doing nothing, laying in the grass, just like listening to our listening to our voices. Yeah. All right. Well, have a lovely rest of your day. See you next time.